hearts and open them to Matthew chapter 2. Today is the last in a series of sermons that we've had concerning the birth of Christ. Uh, Next week we're going to move on into chapter 3 of the book of Matthew, which is actually a 30-year time jump in the story of Jesus' life. Uh, Jesus begins his public ministry, and of course that will lead him to the cross where he dies for the sins of the world. But in the meantime, there are certain details that have to be taken care of as Matthew explains the providential protection that God had over the birth of the Messiah. You see, not everyone welcomed the birth of Jesus. Today we look back on his birth and we are just overwhelmed and awed that God loved us so much that he would send his son into the world to die for us. So we have Christmas pageants and we have nativity scenes. There are churches that make a huge to-do at Christmas time and we have all of the carols that are sung, music that's played, orchestras and cantatas and operas. We love the Christmas season. I, I heard a story once about a Sunday school teacher that wanted to put on a Christmas play But she wanted her students to write the play themselves and and to interpret the story as they wanted to tell it. And so they were going to give their version of the events. And so instead of strictly going by the Bible, they wrote the play. And it was a very interesting play because they wanted to have the whole class involved in the play. And so they had two Marys and two Josephs. They had eight shepherds and ten wise men and one little boy who played the cow. And uh, then there was another little boy. He wanted to be the doctor that delivered the baby. And so when uh, the time came for the birth of the baby, he went over to the manger and he picked up a little doll that was wrapped up in a blanket and excitedly proclaimed to the parents, Congratulations, it's a God. (laughs) Well, the difficulty that Matthew has in the true story of the birth of Jesus is to convince his readers that a child of such lowly birth, one who was born in such poor conditions, one who endured such ignominy, how this young child could actually be a king, how he could be the Savior, and how he truly is our God. And so to do so, Matthew goes to the only place where he can find the right kind of information that will attest to these facts. And so he goes to the Old Testament, and there he tells us about the prophets who foretold all of these things. In the second chapter, we have the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. That was a prophecy. The prophecy that Herod would seek the young child's life and then that they would have to flee into Egypt. Uh, The second chapter tells about the cruelty of Herod in his uh, killing of the defenseless infants when he found out that the wise men had deceived him. And then uh, all of these things, these prophecies are all spoken of here in Matthew chapter 2. But there's one other prophecy that we haven't yet gotten to, and this comes in the end of the chapter. It's the fourth prophecy, and this is the one I want to speak to you about today. This is the prophecy concerning the type of life that Jesus would live, how he would be despised and hated throughout his life, and it was typified by the place where Jesus grew up. There were nearly 30 of the 33 years of his life that were lived in this place, what have That was a place of disrespect, and this typified how that Jesus would be treated throughout his ministry. Now, we're going to read today from Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse number 19. Our text verse for our reading is verse number 23. If you'd stand, please, as we read God's word. Uh, Matthew chapter 2, 
uh, beginning in verse number 19. But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeareth in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for they are dead which sought the young child's life. And he arose and took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea in the room of his father Herod, he was afraid to go thither. Notwithstanding, being warned of God in a dream, he turned aside into the parts of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for each one who's come today to hear your word. Lord, as we open up this passage, help us to understand better why Jesus was called a Nazarene and what a name that it was. And then, Lord, as we explore this today, I just pray that every person that's here would not be afraid to live by that name, the sect of the Nazarenes. Bless us as we consider your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As I begin the message today, I want to take you back to an Old Testament story that demonstrates the attempts of Satan to destroy the royal line of David. If Satan could break the messianic line of David, then when Jesus came into the world, he would have no right to be able to claim the, the, uh, the, the throne of David and to sit upon that throne. Now, the story that I'm referring to is in 2 Kings chapter 11. We're not going to turn there today, but I just want to tell you a little bit about what it talks about. Uh, the, one of the most wicked kings that Israel had was a king by the name of Ahab. Most of you or some of you may not recognize the name of Ahab, but you most certainly, I think, probably know his wife. His wife was Jezebel. And Ahab and Jezebel were two enemies of God's prophet Elijah. And they were responsible for some of the worst atrocities of idol worship and the destruction of true worshipers of God that Israel had ever seen. Ahab had a daughter named Athaliah. And she was the mother of another of Israel's kings named Ahaziah. When Ahaziah was killed, Athaliah, his mother, seized control of the throne and she reigned in Jerusalem for a period of about six years. And during that time, she tried to prevent the sons of Ahaziah, and these would have been her grandchildren. She tried to prevent them from coming to the throne. And so she ordered all of the children, her grandchildren, by her son Ahaziah killed so that she could maintain her power on the throne. So Athaliah was a very ruthless woman, and uh, she would stop at nothing to maintain that control. And her scheme was to stop the royal line so that no one else could claim that throne, and then she could sit there. And if she had been successful, then theoretically, Jesus, when he came, would not have been able to claim the right to the throne. But God was watching over David's descendants, and when Athaliah was... Uh, uh, killed, or Athaliah killed all the sons of Ahaz, I should say, there was one son that God protected and did not allow to be killed, and that was Joash. Well, later Athaliah was killed, and then at the age of seven years old, Joash came to the throne in Judah, and so thus the royal line was protected. Well, Satan tried to destroy that royal line. After that, he kept up his attempts, And we find here in the book of Matthew that he still is attempting that as he tries to kill Jesus when he was born. 
And that's why Mary and Joseph had to take Jesus and to go into Egypt. Herod, who tried to kill Jesus, of course was no match for the providence of God. And so finally Herod died, just as all people do who try to raise their hand against God's anointed. When he died, then the major threat against the life of Jesus was gone. And so there was an angel that came to Joseph that appeared to him and told him that now it was safe for him to take the young child back into Israel. But the danger wasn't completely over. There was still a problem. And that's because Herod's son, named Archelaus, came to the throne. Now, Archelaus wasn't particularly looking for Jesus. And it seems like during those months that Jesus and his family spent down in Egypt that the people sort of forgot about him and forgot about that this king had come. And so uh, Archelaus really wasn't looking for Jesus. But the problem is that Archelaus was known as someone who would just indiscriminately kill Jews. And so that meant that Jesus' life could still possibly be in danger. And so when Joseph came back to Israel, instead of going to Bethlehem or going to Jerusalem to live... The Holy Spirit guided them and the angel guided them to a city in Galilee by the name of Nazareth. And that's where Jesus grew up from infancy into a man. Well, was all of that accidental? I mean, did they settle in Nazareth because there was just a series of events that fell out randomly and so this is where the family ends up? Well, not according to the word of God because Matthew tells us in verse number 23, and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now today this has been sort of a long introduction to the sermon, but I thought it was very important for us to understand that Jesus going to Nazareth is a part of prophecy. And it attests to the way that Jesus would be treated throughout his life. He came from a city called Nazareth, and he was known as the no-good Nazarene. Now we're going to look at this name for just a few minutes this morning and see if we can find out some things about it. The name of Jesus of Nazareth, the no-good Nazarene. Well, the first thing that we could say about this is that it's a name of contempt. Now, as Moses, or Matthew rather, spoke, he said, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, one of the problems that we have with this prophecy is that there is no particular text that we find in the Old Testament that says specifically that Jesus would be a Nazarene. Now, some have tried to equate that with being a Nazarite, and that was a characteristic of a special vow that was taken by certain Israelites. If you remember, Samson was a Nazarite, and the vow that he took said that he couldn't cut his hair, he couldn't touch a dead body, and things like he couldn't eat anything or drink anything that came from a vine. Now, Jesus was not a Nazarite. He was a Nazarene. I'm not going to go into the length of his hair today, but uh, certainly I can tell you this, that Jesus did touch dead bodies because he raised them from the dead. And also Jesus did eat things that came from the vine because he celebrated the Passover. And he also gave us that wonderful memorial ordinance that we know as the Lord's Supper. So he was not a Nazarite, he was a Nazarene. So where then is the prophecy found? Well, we notice here that Matthew changes the wording in verse number 23. He doesn't say that the prophets said, not like he had in other places, but he says here the prophets, and that's plural. He said the prophets spoke. He shall be called a Nazarene. So the prophecy is really a general one that Jesus would grow up and he would be known as no good. 
And he would be from a place that was despised. And so this was a prophecy that related to the general or was a general reference to what people thought about him, to what they thought his character was like. What did people think about his character? Well, let me give you some things this morning. First, he was despised because of the place where he lived. Nazareth was a place of bad reputation. Now, if we could liken that to areas of our country, we would say, well, he was, he was born in the ghetto. Uh, people that were from Nazareth were generally known for their violence, and they were known for cruelty. It was the kind of place that you had to keep both eyes open as you went in there. So you'd walk warily into the city because you didn't know what could happen to you when you went there. It was the kind of place that people made fun of, and they made fun of you if you came from there. Some of you probably know some places that are the brunt of people's jokes. They find out that you're from a certain place, and they make a joke that you're from that place. Back when I was living in Kentucky, I grew up there. Uh, we despised, now I'm loo- using that term generally and loosely, but uh, we despised anybody that came from Ohio or Tennessee. Now, people from Ohio were known as Buckeyes. Does anybody know what a Buckeye is? Bu- Ohio is the Buckeye state. Well, people from Kentucky knew what a Buckeye was. A Buckeye is a worthless nut. People from Tennessee, so you understand what I'm saying. Uh, people from Tennessee weren't any better. I mean, we didn't like them either. And I like the uh, story about two fellows who graduated from the University of Tennessee. They were sitting in their house one day, and they started just hooping and hollering, and they were really cheering. And uh, someone came along and heard all of that hooping and hollering and said, what's that all about? And one of them was sitting there, yes, yes. And somebody went up and asked them, what, what are you yelling about? What's this all, what's this all about? And, and these two fellows from Tennessee said, I mean, they graduated from the University of Tennessee. Well, they said, we just finished this jigsaw puzzle. It only took us two months. And the other person said, two months? Well, what's so great about that? They said, well, the box said two to four years. So people from, does that take a while for that to sink into you? People from Nazareth were country bumpkins. I mean, nobody liked them. And these were people that were as rough as a corn cob. They had no social graces. That's a Kentucky expression. They're just rough people. Nobody liked them. Now, you remember that when Philip was told about Jesus, and I mean Philip, a person who really had no axe to grind over this, when when Philip heard about where Jesus was from, he said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And that's the reputation of the place. Jesus gained no advantages from the place that he was born or a place that he lived, rather. It was, a, it was not a prominent place. It was not the holy city of Jerusalem. It was not Bethlehem. Jesus was not known as Jesus of Bethlehem, and that would have been far better because that's the city of David. But God chose that he would be, live in Nazareth, and he would be despised because of the neighborhood that he came from. Now, the second thing that we notice about this place or about the people despising him, he was despised because of his parents. Now, it was assumed that Joseph was his father, and if a king is to be born, then surely a king is going to be born into a prominent family. I mean, don't you expect that the family of a king would be a family of notoriety, and you'd expect them to be rich, and they would have a, a position of prominence? But Joseph was basically a nobody. He wasn't a ruler at the temple. He was no kind of a leader in the synagogues. He didn't have a fine house. He didn't have servants. His occupation was that of a carpenter. 
It's kind of interesting about Jesus being a carpenter. When we were in Israel last year, we, we visited Nazareth, and, and uh, uh, it was noted by our teacher as he was talking to us how few trees that there are around Nazareth. And he said, well, it would have been a really hard time for Jesus to um, live in Nazareth and to be a carpenter because most of the houses there are made of stone. So there wouldn't be much work for him. So it was suggested that Joseph and Jesus actually went into a nearby town, and that's where they worked, and this was the town of Sepphoris. That was the largest city in Galilee at the time. It was a place that Herod Antipas had made the capital of Galilee just before Jesus was born. It was a city that had a very large theater, and and there were lots of houses there also that were made of stone. And so it was suggested that Jesus was actually a stonemason, and that's what the word carpenter refers to. Well, that sort of ruins our traditional thinking about Jesus' occupation. I don't know if that's true or not, but I do know this, that the job that he had, whether it was a stonemason or whether he was working with wood, the same thing would be true. That's considered to be a blue-collar job, and it's not really one. It's a high-society occupation, and that's how Joseph and Jesus were employed. And then what about Mary? Well, Mary was just a poor Galilean girl. And there's nothing that's said in the Bible about her family that says that they were wealthy or that they had any notoriety. And both Joseph and Mary were from this town of Nazareth. And that's why when Joseph brought the family back into Israel, Nazareth was the place of choice. That's where he took the family to live. Well, of course, Joseph was not Jesus' real father, uh, But people looked at this and they said, these are his parents and they come from a place, they come from Podunkville, but he's supposed to be a king. Now, thirdly, then, he was despised because of his people. We could take that in the broadest sense and we could talk about how he was despised because he was a Jew. Jews were the most hated people. Even from the very beginning, Jews were hated people. And even today... Jews are not people that are loved. Uh, You look at World War II when Hitler and Stalin tried to completely exterminate the Jews. But we could talk about that, but that's not really where I want to focus. I want to narrow this down to Jesus' companions. Who were Jesus' companions? Well, Jesus didn't choose to surround himself with wealthy people, not highly educated people. When he chose the apostles, they weren't lawyers and they weren't from the temple. They weren't the scribes. None of them had ever been to a rabbinical school. Jesus chose them, and when they went into the temples and and into the temple and the synagogues later, and they began to preach, people said about them, well, they're ignorant. They're unlearned men. And then just in general, Jesus, the common people that hung around him, the friends in general, were the wrong kinds of people. The, the well-heeled Pharisee said, well, he's a friend of publicans and of sinners, a friend of the lowly, hated tax collectors. He's a friend of sinners. And so it was outcast. It was the dregs of society that Jesus befriended, and it was mostly to them that he devoted his ministry. And then he was despised because of his positions. Now, it's really his doctrine that brought him the most scorn. Because he went to the wealthy people and he went to those learned men. He went to those in the temple and he told them, you are no better in God's eyes than these tax collectors and these prostitutes that I hang out with. You're no better than these that you call my friends. 
He even told Nicodemus, who was a ruler of the Jews, one who was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. He said to him, you must be born again. And so they hated that doctrine. They did not want to believe that their self-righteousness counted for nothing. They didn't want to hear that all that they had done was worthless in God's eyes. Their devotion to their religion, all of the good works that they did, it was nothing but putrid in the sight of God. In fact, right here in the book of Matthew, if you were to look in chapter 23, Jesus was speaking to these people, and he said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. And so he compared them to be uh, the, the rotting bones and rotting flesh in a tomb. Read that 23rd chapter later, and you'll find out the scathing rebukes that Jesus put upon those people. Then you'll understand better why they so hated his doctrine. So all of these things, these are sources of contempt that was placed upon him. The place that he was born, his parents, his people, his positions, none of that commended him to those that were around him. And this is exactly what the prophets were told. He would be hated. Isaiah said, he is despised and rejected of men. And the psalmist predicted Jesus' own words when he said, But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, and despised of the people. So that's what they thought when they looked at Jesus. He comes from Nazareth. He's a no-good Nazarene. He shall be called a Nazarene. That's what the Scripture said. And that was their assessment of him, an assessment of his character. There's nothing good in him. There's no reason to believe him. We hate him. We despise everything that he's about. And that was the first century assessment, the analysis of Jesus. Now, most gave him then a name of contempt. But it didn't end in the first century because I want you to notice, secondly, that it's a name that still continues today. This is a name that still goes on today. In all of those centuries since Jesus was been here, he has not shed the contempt that was first put on him. Now, when he's a baby, he had never even spoken a word. And Herod tried to kill him. And... uh, When he entered into his public ministry, Satan came and he tempted him. Then after that, the first 11 chapters of Matthew are spent describing all of the good things that Jesus did for the people. And then they started to turn on him. I mean, they loved being healed. They loved the miracles that he did. They loved it when he preached a sermon and then they fed them afterwards. But finally, those teachings began to sink in. And their love of pleasure and their love of self started to outweigh all of the benefits that Jesus gave. The teachings that Jesus gave were not palpable in the first century and neither are they favored today. And so despite all of the blessings that have come from true Christianity in all these years, still he's known as a no-good Nazarene. And so that no-good Nazarene, it's a name of general hatred for all that he stands for and that name still continues. Now, let me point out something to you about why Nazarenes or those, those of us that are associated with Christ. Why do we get under the skin of people? Why do we irk people so badly? Well, I think, first of all, because of our separation. They don't like us because of that separation. And when I speak of Nazarenes right now, I'm not talking about the denomination in Christianity that's known as the Nazarenes. You can go a short distance from our church here, and you can find a church that's called the Church of the Nazarenes. Now, some of them may or may not be included in what I'm going to say next, but I'm really talking about you. I'm talking about people right here in this room today that you are followers of Jesus. 
This is a name that sticks with us. Now, it's a name that stuck with the disciples. When Paul was brought before Felix, his accusers said about him, For we have found this man a pestilent fellow and a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, because Paul taught Christ, he was known also as a Nazarene. And that's a term of derision. Well, why is it? that people hate so much our association with Jesus. One reason is because of our lifestyle. True Christians are separated from the world. We live differently from them. There's a higher standard by which we live, and that standard that we live by cuts across the grain of the world. And when we, as Christians, live by God's standards, it begins to throw light on the evil activity of those that are around us. Jesus explained it in John chapter 3. He said, and this is the condemnation that light is come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. So here's what happens to you. If you happen to be a Christian who decides that you're going to read your Bible at work or if you're a person who bows his head when you eat your lunch, then there's a certain uneasiness that comes on the people that are around you. When you step outside because a coworker has just begun to tell some kind of a smutty story, when you step outside of the room, then the level of discomfort with you starts to go up. You see, with the crowd, everything that's wrong seems to be right. And so their standards, their outlook, their desires, the things that satisfy them, it's totally different from the Christian. We can't fit in with that. And so a Christian who who is among those kinds of people is going to stick out like a sore thumb. And I think that's exactly what Jesus meant when he said in Matthew chapter 5, Ye are the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hid. And so if you live a separated for Christ, life for Christ, you will stand out from other people. And either the Holy Spirit will start to draw people to you because of that light, or they're going to be repelled by the life. They'll shrink away from you because your life exposes the sins of their life. And so they're uncomfortable with that. Your lifestyle will be automatic separation from them. You don't really even have to do anything. Just act, live, talk like a Christian, and people will begin to separate from you. And the reason is they still do not like that no-good name Nazarene. They still don't like that sect called the Nazarene. But I'll tell you this, we will keep that name Nazarene and we'll keep it because of our steadfastness in belief of that name. When the disciples were brought before the Jewish council because they'd healed an impotent man at the temple, they asked him, by what power and by what name have you done this? And in the book of Acts chapter 4, they said, be it known unto you and to all the people of Israel that by that name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand before you whole. Then the scripture goes on to say, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of him that he had been with Jesus. Well, they were commanded Don't preach in his name. No longer preach in his name. But Peter and the apostles stood firmly. They were steadfast in their doctrine. They told them, we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So how will you keep that name? Now, that's a good question for us as Christians. How will we keep the name? 
Well, I'll tell you, the membership of this church, of Berean Baptist Church, we don't seek to shed the name of the Nazarene. We're not trying to get rid of it. As long as we stay stay true to his words, as long as we keep preaching these old-time doctrines that are in the word of God, nobody is ever going to confuse us with a hundred different churches that are around us. Now, you can go out there and visit many different churches in Ronard Park and throughout Santa Rosa, and you will not find anything that looks like us. You come here, and you'll still hear us preaching from the Bible. You'll still hear us reading the Scriptures. We haven't given up and gone to the purpose-driven life and the purpose-driven church. We use the Word of God. And you won't find a stage of entertainment here for your pleasure. We don't serve lattes for you to sip on while you listen to the message. We don't compromise, and we will not compromise. And we're not going to try to make this church into a place that people around us like to see and want the church to be. We will make this church what the no-good Nazarene wants the church to be. Now, I'm going to tell you something. It won't fit your lifestyle. It won't tickle your ears. It won't make you comfortable in your sin. It's a light that will either change you or it will make you squirm in your pew every time that you come. We're not afraid of the despised name of the Nazarene. We preach it, and we're not going to trade it for any other name. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So we're not ashamed of it, and so we'll take that continued contempt for the name of Christ. Now, churches today are everything but Christ. They don't like what he said. They They don't like what he did, and so they start to substitute something else for the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not going to do that. Don't expect to hear anything when you come to Berean Baptist Church except Jesus Christ and him crucified for the sins of the world. But I have one other thing, then, I want to show you about his name as we conclude today, and that is number three. It is the name of the cross. Jesus carried this name throughout his life. And when they wouldn't call him the Christ, they would call him the Nazarene. The contempt was always there. They they never gave up, and they kept it up to the very day that he died. They laid him out on a cross. They nailed his hands and his feet to that cross. And then they brought a placard, and they put it up over his head. And this reference is very easy for for you to remember. It's John 19, 19. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. So nailing him to the cross one more time, they had to put that name of derision on him. But you know, as they did, it actually reversed everything that they thought about him. First, it was proof of his character. If Jesus had been like they said that he was, he never would have been on that cross. I mean, he he would never have put himself in a position that he would be despised. He never would have lived like, like he did. He would have lived like people that were around him. He would have done what most people do today. He would have gone with the flow. Whatever, whatever it is they're doing, I'll do that too because I don't want to be different from anyone else. He'd just fit in with the crowd. He's not going to trouble any waters. He'd be so ordinary that he would fit in with a thousand different Jews that were around. But his character was different. He was able to to do something about the human condition. And so he did what no man could ever do. He willingly took up on him the full wrath of God against sin. And he was willing to drink 
the dregs of that cross right down to the very last drop. Knowing full well what he would suffer. Knowing how agonizing that it would be. No one in the history of the world has ever suffered so much as Jesus Christ. And yet he stayed right there on that cross. He resisted the temptation when they cried out to him, Come down from that cross. If you be the Christ, come down. Save yourself and save us. But it was precisely because he was the Christ, he was the Son of God, that he would not come down. Because he could not come down from the cross and save himself and at the same time save us. And so he gave up his life willingly for us, and that proved his true character. And then it's also proof of his compassion. People that were from Nazareth were ruthless and uncaring. If you had a problem, if you needed something, you didn't go to Nazareth. You wouldn't run there. I mean, people would be as likely to mug you as they would to sympathize with you. But Jesus was different from that. He proved his compassion. Isaiah talks about him going to the cross, and he says, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. And then Isaiah also wrote that God had sent him to bind up the brokenhearted. And so never was there a name that was given to him given so wrongly when they called him the no-good Nazarene. And that's because his goodness, his kind-heartedness, his love, his love and compassion, that was what Jesus was all about. And then thirdly, it was proof of his crown. Now we come back full swing to Matthew's intent. He started this gospel with the ancestry of Christ. He wrote to prove what the prophets said. Isaiah said, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The prophets said all of this about him. But they also said that he must die. And so when he went to the cross, he actually answered all of his critics. They mockingly wrote that title above his name. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. But Pilate only had that half right. What he should have written, this is Jesus of Nazareth, who is the king of all kings. What Pilate should have written is wherefore God hath also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what should have been written over the cross. Now finally, let me leave you with this. Why go to Nazareth? Why why be called a Nazarene? Why would you pick out the very worst place in Israel for Jesus to live. I mean, you know what's going to be heaped upon him. You you know what the problems of being from Nazareth are going to be like. Why did God send him there? Well, I think the answer to the question is simple, and yet it's profound, and that is that God did not want you to be drawn to Jesus because he was rich. God did not want you to come to him because he was a famous person. Jesus must be humiliated in every way to the nth degree. 
Jesus had to be completely emptied. He had to be so thoroughly despised that you would not come to him for any other reason than that you see by faith who he really is. So here is the reason for it. He was called the Nazarene so that you would not come to him except by faith. Now Nathaniel could not believe that any good thing could come out of Nazareth until he met Jesus by faith. In Acts chapter 9, Saul was breathing out threatenings against the disciples. Verse number 2 of that chapter says that he was looking for people of this way. And what is this way? Well, it was the way of the Nazarenes. And it wasn't until the apostle Paul saw him by faith that he would now love anyone that before he despised so much. And then we think about that thief on the cross. Is there any reason why a man dying next to this thief, a man who had a crown of thorns placed on his head, who was beaten unmercifully, beaten beyond recognition, a man hanging there as he was with nails driven into his hands and into his feet, is there any reason that the thief would look at Jesus and say that he is the Savior and I trust him and ask him to take me to paradise, Lord be with me? Is there any reason why that thief would say such things to Jesus? None at all. There's only one reason. He saw who he was by faith. Now let me ask you this morning, what do you think of him? The angel stood by just itching to come and deliver him from that cross. But he died, and when he did, he proved his character, his compassion, he proved his crown. But he did much more because not only did he die, the Bible says that he arose from the grave, and it tells us that he arose for our justification. And so seeing all the prophecies fulfilled about Jesus, the no-good Nazarene, what is it that you think about him? Peter said, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow in his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness. By whose stripes ye were healed. That is the absolute truth of what it means to be called a Nazarene. And we will bear that name proudly because we believe that Jesus truly is the Christ, the Savior of the world. Let's bow and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time that we spend in your word today. We think about Jesus, how he was despised and rejected of men, how he was not at all what people expected, But when he went to that cross, he proved who he truly was. He's the Savior of the world. Lord, I ask you that you would speak to hearts today, that they might consider Christ. They might consider the name of the Nazarene. Lord, may we bear his reproach. And I ask you, Lord, you'd speak to some heart today, that they might understand who Jesus truly is and come to him in salvation. And then for every Christian who's here today, I ask you, Lord, you'd speak to our hearts and you'd strengthen us that we might bear that name even as he did and that we might be a light that our works, our good works, the light that's in our heart through the gospel of Christ might shine out and that it would reprove the world of its sin and its unrighteousness. Lord, bless in this invitation today. Draw our hearts close to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.